of introduction. As we live right now, we're all aware of this. There's a pandemic sweeping across the world. There are earthquakes regularly all the time. Living in California, my wife and I, we endured four earthquakes just in three years. Just this year, there's a plague of locusts sweeping across the world, in Africa especially. And the question that often arises, even in the hearts of faithful believers, is are these signs of the end times? There are many sensational doomsday prophets, especially on Facebook right now, saying COVID-19 is a sign of the end times. Every major world event, people come out and say things like that. One person said the uh, events of 9-11 were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And so as believers, how do we think through these things? Should we be looking for signs of the end times? Turn with me quickly to Luke chapter 21. And no, I'm not going to be exegeting Luke 21. I'll leave that to Travis when he gets there. But many of us are familiar with Jesus' words in Luke 21, Matthew 25, 24, and Mark 13, where Jesus told his disciples what the sign of the end times will be. Luke 21, his disciples ask him that very question, Lord, what are the sign of the end times? When are you going to come and return and Jerusalem is going to be destroyed? And Jesus tells them this in Luke 21, verse 10. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. And then a little bit later, in Luke 21, Jesus tells them a parable of a fig tree. He says, just as a fig tree produces leaves in the spring... Just as we see now in Colorado, the trees are sprouting, the leaves are coming out. It's indicating that summer is near. And in verse 31, Jesus says, So also, when you see all these things, that is the things that we just read in 10 to 12, nation rising against nation, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. And as I mentioned, those kinds of signs are happening regularly. Wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, pestilences. So are those signs of the end times? And the answer is no, they are not. The things that are happening today are not a direct fulfillment of Jesus' words. And I'll show you that. Take your Bibles and go to Revelation chapter 6. If you have a finger, keep a finger in Luke 21. We're going to come back to that, or a bookmark, and go to Revelation chapter 6 with me. This is the beginning of the tribulation. Jesus wrote letters to the seven churches that John records, and then there's a throne room scene in heaven, and the scroll is given to the Lamb to judge the world. And in chapter 6 is the beginning of Christ's judgments upon the earth. And just notice as I go through this, I'm going to point out the parallels to what Jesus said in Luke 21. Let's just begin in verse 1 of chapter 6. Now I watched, that is John, when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. 
And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, this wasn't one of the specific signs Jesus mentioned of the end times, but in Luke 21, right before that, he told the disciples that many people would come in his name saying, I am he, that is, I am the Messiah. And he told them, don't believe them. But the first sign of the tribulation is going to be the revelation of the Antichrist who comes on a white horse, just like Christ comes on a white horse in Revelation 19. The Antichrist comes on a white horse conquering and to conquer. And verse 3, When he, that is Jesus, opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. So this second seal is a direct correlation to what Jesus said. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Let's keep going to the third seal in verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. So here we see plague and famine. A denarius is a day's wage. Just imagine having to spend one of your day's wages on a small cup of flour. This is famine upon the earth. And that's one of the things Jesus mentioned. Let's look at the fourth seal. Verse 7, When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So again, same words used as in Luke 21, pestilence, famine. And we're going to skip verses 9 to 11 because the fifth seal is opened and we don't actually know what happens on the earth. It's a throne room scene in heaven. So we're going to skip down to verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there is a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as, fig, as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So that's exactly what Jesus was mentioning in Luke 21, earthquakes, terrors and signs from heaven. And so all the signs that Jesus mentions in Luke 21 for the end times, they have a direct correlation to the sealed judgments in Revelation 6. Revelation 6 is Jesus' revelation to John for the churches, and it's an explanation of the signs he gave in Luke 21. So if what we are seeing today are signs of the end times, then that means that the tribulation has already begun. But that is not the case. Take your Bibles and go with me to 2 Thessalonians, where you just were with Travis. We're going to pick up right where he left off. Paul wrote the Thessalonians about this very thing. He wanted to reassure people that the tribulation 
or the day of the Lord, as it's often referred to, has not come, and he tells us what has to happen first. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So Paul tells us here what has to happen first. Before Jesus' words can be fulfilled here, what has to happen first? Two things he mentions, the rebellion and the revelation of the Antichrist. And that word rebellion in your ESV Bible in the Greek, if you just translate it literally, it means the departing. And they're interpreting that for you a little bit there by using the word rebellion. The departing, they don't exactly know what that refers to. It could refer to the departing of Israel to sign the treaty with the Antichrist. Or it re could, re could refer to the abomination of desolation as referred to in Daniel. Or it could also refer to the departing of the church to be with Jesus in the rapture. Now, if I was doing a full exposition of Thessalonians, I would make an exegetical determination on what that was. But for our purposes here, neither of those three things have happened, so we can be sure that what Paul is referring to here has not happened yet. That hasn't happened, and the revelation of the Antichrist has not happened. So we can be certain that the day of the Lord is not upon us. All of the horrible things coming in Revelation are not upon us. The Antichrist has not been revealed. The departing has not happened. So, beloved, do not be fooled. Do not give any credence, really, to anything you see on Facebook, but especially people claiming biblical prophecies. Do not be fooled. Do not be alarmed. Do not fret about what is going on in the world. So, all that by way of introduction. So, as believers, what do we think about the end times? Are there signs that we should be looking for? And really, is this important at all for us believers to think about? Is this important for the everyday believer's life? And the answer is very emphatically yes. This is of the utmost importance if you are going to know how to live in this age. And so what I am going to do today is I'm going to attempt to give you a timeline of end time events. Next week, I hope to go through a timeline of events today, and next week, if I'm here, I'm going to be talking about what happens at the end, the eternal state. What is it going to look like for us believers in the eternal state? Or as many people think, what is heaven going to be like. But that will be next week. Today, we're going to look at how we get there. What brings us to the point where we are all together in eternity with Christ? Biblically speaking, the current age that we are living in is the church age. Paul also referred to it in Galatians 1.4 as the evil 
age. But ever since Acts 2 and the inauguration of the church, saints have been living in the church age. We are still in the church age now. And so as we look forward, there are several events that we need to be aware of in order to live appropriately in this age. And so you can write down these four events will be our outline for this morning. Number one, the rapture of the church. Number two, the tribulation of the world. Number three, the millennial kingdom of Christ. And then number four, you don't have to write this down, this is what we'll be talking about next week, the eternal state of the blessed. The rapture of the church, the tribulation of the world, the millennial kingdom of Christ, and the eternal state of the blessed. So the first event, that is the next event on the prophetic calendar, is the rapture of the church. But what is the rapture of the church? When does it happen? Are there signs for us to know that it is coming? And does it really matter for us? So let's start with that first one. What is the rapture? The English word rapture comes from the Greek word harpazo, which means to suddenly remove or to snatch away. And this Greek word harpazo is actually where our word harpoon comes from snatching something quickly to remove it from the ocean. It's used in Scripture of stealing, plundering, removing objects. It's used of Paul when he was caught up to the third heaven. So this harpazo term, this term, we, the word we have for the rapture, describes God's sudden taking of the church from earth to heaven. So that's what it is. The rapture is God's sudden taking of the church, all believers, when he comes to heaven. The next question is, when does this occur? And that is the major question in biblical discussions. And as you might have surmised from my outline, I'm going to argue that it is going to happen before the tribulation. While many people disagree on the timing of the rapture, I just want to say at the outset that this is not a gospel issue. This is not something that we ought to divide over. There are good people on all sides of this debate. But I think there is much stronger evidence for a pre-tribulation rapture rather than mid-tribulation or post-tribulation. And I'm going to show you why. And these points are where also we're going to get our application from why they matter for us today. And so the first main reason, I think that the rapture comes before the tribulation, and you can make subpoints out of these if you want, the main reasons in a pre-tribulation rapture is that only a pre-tribulation rapture, a rapture, God removing the church before the tribulation, is the only view that accounts for deliverance from wrath to come language. It's the only view that accounts for the deliverance of wrath to come language. Go back with me to Revelation chapter 6. We left off after all the seal judgments or the sixth seal judgment was poured out. There were earthquakes and signs from heaven. 
But there's a response from all the people after this. In verse 15 is where we left off. Let's pick it up there. After every mountain and island has been removed from its place, Verse 15, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? And so here we have the response of the people, after God has poured his wrath out upon the earth in the sealed judgments, these people hide themselves in the mountains in the midst of earthquakes, hoping that the mountains fall on them to hide them from the face of him who's on the throne. But they directly, they tell us explicitly that this is the wrath of the lamb and it is the wrath of the one seated on the throne. Now, there is much language in the scripture that indicates that we are going to be delivered from the wrath that is to come. Look right before this in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Paul is writing here to the church at Philippi. And he tells them in verse 10, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Now, he doesn't specifically use the word wrath there. He doesn't say you're going to be kept from wrath. But in the context of Revelation, the trial that's coming upon the whole world is the tribulation. That's what comes next in the book of Revelation. And I think you're hard-pressed to attribute that to something else. Yes, historically, bad things have happened to the church since then. But in the context of the book of Revelation, that's what comes next. And just as, as Jesus promised the church at Philadelphia, and just as he promised all the other churches in Revelation, they were general promises that were applicable to the entire church, not just to that specific church. So if we are faithful believers, if we are true believers, we can also have confidence that we are going to be kept from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world. The beginning of the tribulation is the wrath of God and the Lamb being poured out on the whole world and we will be kept from it, as Jesus says in 3.10. But Paul also tells us this in 1 Thessalonians. Go to 1 Thessalonians with me. Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, and he wrote to the Thessalonians more about end-time events than anyone else. And he tells the Thessalonians, in the first part of the letter, he's commending them for turning to Christ, and he's also commending them, in verse 10, that they wait for his Son from heaven. And so as then, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now the question is, what wrath is Paul referring to? Is he referring to the wrath that people will receive if they don't believe in Christ? Is this Jesus keeps us from eternal wrath in hell? Yes, I think that's true. 
But I think Paul is not making a division here between eternal punishment and wrath from God and also the wrath of the tribulation. I think Paul is telling us here, Jesus delivers us, delivers believers from all wrath. But I think it, mo- it is more clearly seen here as the wrath of the day of the Lord or the wrath of the tribulation. Look at the next page. In chapter 4, Paul explicitly tells us about the tribulation and what comes after, mentioning again being saved from wrath. So just to put this in context, let's read chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. And this is the section of Scripture that explicitly, more than any other passage, teaches us about the rapture. And he says in verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. See, Paul's telling them that because they thought Jesus was going to return quickly, and they were afraid that the people who died before Jesus came back, they were going to miss out in some way. And so that's why he tells them, don't grieve as others do. Verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. They're not missing out on anything. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of our Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Remember that for later, a cry of command. And with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So this is just to set the next section in context. Jesus is telling them, you can be certain. You can be happy for those who have passed away. They're going to meet us in the sky, and we're all going to be there with Jesus forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And then he tells them in chapter 5, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers. This, just think of seasons. Jesus told them a parable. Seasons. When spring comes, you know summer is near. So this is talking about signs. Now concerning the times and the seasons, or the signs, brothers, You have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then the sudden destruction will come upon them. Now notice here the contrast that Paul has made in 13 to 18. We, us, we will be caught up. But here he's making a contrast Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. And then he contrasts back. But you, dearly beloved, you are not in darkness. Brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We all see clearly, as Travis has been teaching, we have the light, therefore we can see clearly We are not of the night nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet of hope of salvation. For God has not destined us 
for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so once again, Paul says, God has not destined us for wrath. And yes, in the direct context, we, also, we have the day of the Lord and we also have salvation. We don't have to fear God's wrath in this life or in the next. So the Bible explicitly teaches us that believers are not destined for wrath. Believers will escape the trial that is going to come upon the whole world. And in 2 Peter, if you want to go there with me, you can. If you don't, don't worry about it. I'll go there. But in 2 Peter, chapter 2, Peter tells us, or rather explains to us, that this is a pattern that God has. He has a pattern of delivering his people from his wrath. In 2 Peter, chapter 2, verses 4 to 9. Starting in verse 4. For if God, and this is in the context of uh, Peter saying there is great judgment that is going to come upon false prophets. But he wants to assure his listeners that that same condemnation is not going to fall upon them or that same wrath is not going to fall upon them. For if God, verse 4, did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So that's his first example he gives us. Noah was preserved from the wrath of God to a certain extent. But then he says in verse 6, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. That's an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. The example of what's going to happen to the righteous is in verse 7. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual misconduct of the wicked, is that not us now? Listen to this. For as the righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented, tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Is that not us, beloved? Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God has a habit of delivering his people from the great wrath that he pours out on the world. So, why does this matter for us? Well, I don't know if you've read through Revelation recently, but the events that happen are horrendous. Uh, my theology teacher just told us briefly, he added up all the different times it tells us that a third of the people died here and so many people died here. And he says 80% of the population of the world will be annihilated or killed, rather, in the tribulation. I mean, our world is completely out of their minds about less than 1%. Imagine the chaos that will ensue this earth when 80% of the people will perish. But we, who are in Christ, who Christ bore in his body on the tree all of our sin and all of the wrath of God for us, 
there is, Romans 8, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no more wrath for you, beloved. If you read through Revelation and you, you don't want to go through that, that is understandable. None of us do in our right minds. And that is the great hope of the rapture, that we are going to escape that that wrath that is poured out from the Lamb and the one seated on the throne is not for us. It is for the rest of the world. He has not destined us for wrath, but he has promised that he will keep us from that hour. So we can have a great hope, beloved, that we don't have to endure God's wrath found in Revelation. And there's also the great hope that we're going to meet Christ in the clouds with all of those who have gone before us, who have perished. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we are going to be made like Christ. No matter the trial and tribulation that you're enduring now, no matter the sin that you're wrestling with now, when Christ comes back, we will be made like him when we see him, just as he is, 1 John chapter 3. We will be made like him. And I'm not too old at this point, but I'm looking forward to, I have a great hope of one day getting a new body, not struggling with my sin anymore. That is a great hope, beloved. So endure the trials of this life faithfully, with courage, because either the moment that you die in this life or the moment Christ comes back, you will be with him in paradise. So that's the first sub-point. The pre-tribulation rapture view is the only view that accounts from delivering from God's wrath. The mid-tribulation, post-tribulation, they have us all, that view has all of us going through at least a portion of the tribulation. But I don't think the Bible supports that. They can't explain these passages very well. The second thing, the pre-tribulation rapture view best accounts for the mystery language used in Scripture. And we're going to go through this very briefly just for time's sake. Go with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. Many of you are familiar with 1 Corinthians talking about the uh, resurrection. But Paul also talks about the rapture here. 1 Corinthians, let's start in verse 51. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable first and we shall be changed. So Paul here calls this a mystery. Now why is that important? Well, this isn't referring to the second coming of Christ because the second coming of Christ was not a mystery. If, if there was anything understood in the Old Testament 
They didn't understand there was a great divide between the first and the second coming, but they knew that Christ was going to come and judge his enemies. He's going to judge the enemies of Israel. He's going to judge the world. That was not a mystery. Nor was the resurrection a mystery. David, Daniel, Job all explicitly talked about bodily resurrection. That was not a mystery. And a mystery, should back up for a moment, a mystery, biblically speaking, is something that was not revealed clearly in the Old Testament, but is revealed clearly in the New Testament. And so none of those things were a mystery to them. But what was a mystery was that Jesus was going to come. Before he came to conquer, he was going to come and take his people to be with him. It was not a mystery that Christ was coming back. He told them that. But it was a mystery that he was going to save his people before he came to judge the earth. He's going to remove them before he came to judge the earth. That's the second thing. The third, subpoint C, you could say, the pre-tribulation rapture view is the only view that accounts for imminence language. Imminence, uh, think of Christ is given the name Emmanuel, God with us. It's that same idea of nearness. Or you might think of suddenness. If the return of Christ is near, it could be sudden. It could happen at any moment. And only a pre-tribulation rapture view accounts for suddenness or nearness language. If the rapture is going to happen in the middle of the tribulation or at the end of the tribulation, we have the scriptures. We are children of light. We see the signs. We would see it coming. We know the day of the Lord can't happen because the Antichrist hasn't been revealed. And so, only a pre-rapture view accounts for all of the times Jesus said, you know neither the day nor the hour, you must be ready at all times. Go with me to Matthew chapter 25. Jesus said over and over, you, no one knows the day or the hour, therefore watch yourselves. And Matthew chapter 24 is the parallel to Luke 21 that we read earlier. And in Matthew 25, Jesus gives them a couple parables that go along with the imminent coming upon us of the day of the Lord and also the imminent return of Christ to take his church. So, chapter 25, you have the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents. We're going to read quickly just the parable of the ten virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom delayed, that's us right now, Christ is the groom, he is delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midday there was a cry. Remember I told you in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, there's a cry of command when Jesus came. What was that cry? Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. When all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, 
Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him at the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And this is his application. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This coming of the groom for the bride is a reference to the rapture. This is a call of the bride to the marriage feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this, we are told in Revelation 19, is when it happens. It's still the tribulation and the marriage supper of the Lamb is happening in heaven. And Jesus tells us here, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The church is part of the bride of Christ. Everyone has to be there. You can't have a wedding without a bride, and you can't have a wedding with just part of the bride there. And technically speaking, the church is from Acts 2 until the rapture. The entire church is raptured. Saints before that are Old Testament saints. Saints after that are saints in the tribulation. They're tribulational saints. But the church will be taken to heaven to partake of the marriage supper of the Lamb. But Jesus' point here, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. There are no signs indicating that the bridegroom is coming back. Therefore, watch yourselves. Be ready. Be prepared. He could come back at any moment. So what does this matter for us? Well, I think this is the greatest of importance when we're talking about eschatology. We have to have a right understanding of when Jesus is going to come back if we're to live appropriately. Jesus tells us the application is watch yourselves. Turn with me to Luke 21. Go back to where we were and Jesus gives us more application at the end of that where we left off before. Luke 21, verses 34. He gives a little bit more in depth. Luke gives us a little bit more detail about what Jesus wanted us to know when he said watch yourselves. Verse 34 in Luke 21. But watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and stand before the Son of Man. So I think there's application for us here as believers as unbelievers and as people who think that they're believers and they're not. As believers, we have to live every day of our life as if Christ were going to return very soon. We cannot, we have to watch to make sure we're not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness 
drunkenness of alcohol, drunkenness of entertainment, whatever it might be, dissipation, being intoxicated with the things of this world, the cares of this world. Let me just ask you if, especially during this time of lockdown where we don't have uh, the options to go outside and to do things tomorrow, if Christ came back, John, 1 John 3, would you be ashamed at his coming if he found you doing what you were doing? Just look back at the time that you've spent in this pandemic, locked in your house. Would you have been ashamed if Christ came back? And as we make decisions tomorrow about what to do, we need to think, if I do this, am I going to bring God glory at his return or am I going to be ashamed, as John says? We have to think as we make decisions based on the fact that Christ could return at any moment to find us. And that beloved, is why this is so important for us to know. Christ's return is imminent. It could happen at any moment. That's what the parable of the ten virgins was about. So we have to take great care with the decisions we make. Are we using our time wisely to glorify God? Or are we squandering it doing Endless things that have no eternal value. Will you be ashamed at Christ's coming? And the second, the second application for this is that we have to understand we don't have as much time as we think we have. You don't always have tomorrow. Just before my wife and I left California, the whole COVID thing was happening. School went completely online. Church was completely online. I was still working, but we weren't allowed to meet. We weren't allowed to do anything. So my wife and I had decided to think about moving back here. We didn't want to stay there if, I, if there was no reason to stay there. If I could come back and finish school here, then we wanted to save money and do that. We couldn't meet with church people anyway. Only a few weeks prior to this, I was talking to a guy at the lumberyard that I frequented for work. I was there about once a week, and I was talking to him. It turns out he was a Jehovah's Witness, and we were talking about the deity of Christ. And we would converse a little bit. And I went in one day, and it was, I was really busy with work. And he was eager to talk to me, but I said, hey, we, I've, got, I've got a lot of stuff to do today. I don't graduate until May. This was February. I said, we got plenty of time. It was a Tuesday. I think we called Travis, and we said, hey, this is what we're thinking. We decided on Tuesday to leave, and Friday we were gone. Drove away in a moving truck on Friday. And I realized I had lost a very good opportunity with someone who was eager to talk to me. And so when we needed moving boxes, I went back to that lumber yard to buy moving boxes. 
And I went back and I asked the other guy, Eddie, I said, hey, where's so-and-so? And he said, oh, it's his day off. And so, beloved, this, we can't fall into <clears throat> the trap of thinking we have more time. Those beloved family members, you know, who are not saved, friends, co-workers, you may not have tomorrow. Christ could come back today. And those horrible things that happen in Revelation will fall upon them. We ought to take the hope of Christ that we have and not squander the time. For believers, we have to pay attention to the decisions we make, keep the imminent return of Christ in mind. And we can't just squander the time thinking we have a bunch of it. We don't. For unbelievers, if you know you're not saved and you're, you're listening right now, just read Revelation. The little bit that we read, you will be one of those people climbing into a cave to hide yourself from the face of him who is on the throne. He will pour his wrath out on you and you will hope the mountains fall on you to save you from that. But that will only be temporary. All those who are killed in the tribulation as unbelievers will stand to be judged one day and so will you. Only that at that point there is no hope. You will have to give an account for all your wicked deeds and you will be sent to an eternal punishment in hell far worse than anything you could read in Revelation. And so I implore you, friend, there is hope to escape that now. Look upon the beauty of what Christ did on the cross in dying to pay the penalty that you deserve. Bow the knee, as Travis talked about earlier, bow the knee and kiss the feet of Jesus now or you will be struck with an unbearable blow later. Turn from your sin and submit your life to Christ. And you will be saved from the wrath that is to come. You'll be saved from slavery to sin in this life. And you will be set free to live for Christ. Please don't let this day go by you. You are out of time as well. And maybe you are here in church. You come every week. The parable of the ten virgins taught us that half the people, and I'm not saying that half the church is that way, but they're half of the virgins, they thought that they were going to be taken away. But Jesus rejected them and said, I don't know you. That's going to be a, I can't think of anything worse 
than for someone to stand before Christ who thought they were going to be with him to be told that. So if you have no love for God's word, if you really don't miss meeting together anymore and you're okay watching this on your TV, then you really need to examine your heart. Are you just coming to church to escape the wrath of God? Is your Christian life all about you? You need to examine your heart. You do not want to be one of those people on that day. Read through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has application for you at the end of it. Matthew chapter 5. If you think that might be you, read that passage today. He gives you clear things to examine in your life at the end. Matthew chapter 5 through 7. So, for believers, the rapture is going to come before the tribulation. Take great hope. You will escape the wrath of God. But live every day knowing that Christ could come back at any moment. So that brings us to the end of the first point, which is the rapture. The second major event, and there's a whole lot of stuff I'm, I'm skipping over. These are just the major things, major events, major time frames. Number two is the tribulation of the world. And I'm going to be very brief with this because we've talked a lot about it already. We've read it in Revelation just in reference to the rapture. But if you go to Revelation, we're going to walk through this very quickly. Revelation chapter 6. And I was hoping, but there's, there is absolutely no time for that. I was hoping to go to Daniel chapter 9 because that's really the key for biblical prophecy which gives us the seven-year time period. So I was really hoping to go to Daniel, but I don't want to keep you another 40 minutes. I'll just explain it to you. We'll do that some other day for a Sunday school class. The tribulation begins, according to Daniel chapter 9, with the signing of a treaty between Israel and the Antichrist. And it is a seven-year period. And as we already read in Revelation 6, the first seal being opened is a one coming on a white horse, which is the Antichrist, who conquers and to conquer. So that kicks off this seven-year period. Then there is a series of horrible, horrible, horrible judgments upon the world that bring terror and horror to the people. So we're just going to walk through this quickly. I'm not going to get a whole lot of details into a whole lot of details here. You have the first seven seal judgments. And then you have the seven trumpet judgments. And if you keep going, chapter 11 and 13 Mark the midpoint of the tribulation. Daniel chapter 9 says it's seven years, and in, Revela in uh, yeah, Revelation 11 and 13, it mentions 42 months is the midpoint, which is halfway through seven years. The Antichrist will 
break his treaty with Israel and he will set himself up as God in the temple. And this marks the great tribulation. It gets worse from here on out. And Christ said, if these days were not cut short, no one would survive. And so if you keep going, there's seven more plagues in chapter 15. And then 16, there are seven bowls of God's wrath being poured out. So judgment after judgment the seven years are going to be far worse than I think anything we could imagine. Then, Revelation 19, I mentioned this earlier, there's rejoicing in heaven and there is the marriage supper of the Lamb, where all of us who are believers, we will be there. Just notice the rejoicing. I'll I'll skip the first part of 19. But verse 6 in chapter 19, John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord, the God Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that is the church, has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's going to be one of the most blessed moments that we will know to be invited to this marriage celebration, this marriage supper of the Lamb. After this, verse 11, Christ comes. Notice it's the exact same language used of the Antichrist in chapter 6. Verse 11 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. If you're an unbeliever, notice what it how it describes Christ. His eyes are like flames of fire and on his head are many diadems. And then later it says that there is a sword coming out of his mouth to cut down all of his enemies. So Christ comes. The Antichrist is ruling on the earth at this point and he comes. And at the end of verse 19, Starting in verse 20, the beast and the false prophet are captured. Satan is imprisoned for a thousand years. And the rest, verse 21, all those who are unbelievers on the earth during the tribulation, they were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. All the armies of the earth gathered together to come against Christ, and one word from his mouth fells them. All Christ has to do is say, enough. And they are cut down. Do not be so proud to think you can stand up against Christ. 
This ends the tribulation period. And that brings us to the third event, the millennial kingdom of Christ. This starts in verse or chapter 20, where Christ comes and he brings his kingdom for a thousand years. The people who are on earth during the tribulation, who are believers, who survive the tribulation into the millennial kingdom, they continue to bear children. They continue to live their lives here on the earth under Christ's perfect leadership. We, the church, who were taken to be with Christ in the rapture, we return with Christ to rule the earth with him. Now look with me at verse 7. At the end of this thousand-year reign, people are having children. The people who are left here on the earth, they're having children. Everyone who enters the millennial kingdom are believers, but not all of their children will believe. Though they can see Christ face to face, they can be under his perfect leadership, his righteous rule, they will still reject him. And after the thousand years is over, verse 7 in chapter 20 of Revelation, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Even though Christ is bodily reigning on earth in perfect righteousness, the people that rebel against him are like the sand of the sea. And they marched, verse 9, they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, that is Jerusalem. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Just like that. This time Christ doesn't even bother uttering a word. They're destroyed by fire. And verse 10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. That is, they're still there. They're continuing to be there. After a thousand years, they weren't annihilated. They're still there and Satan joins them, tormented day and night forever and ever. Then, after God slays everyone, verse 11, there is a great white throne judgment. All the dead who are wicked, who are not believers, they will be raised to stand before God to be judged. They will be condemned to hell forever and they will be fitted with bodies that can endure fire forever. Imagine being fitted with a body that could survive all the pain receptors, survive being thrown into a volcano. Absolutely horrible to imagine. But all the dead are judged. All those who set themselves up against Christ will be judged by him. There is no hope for them at this point. Their only hope, beloved, is the faithful preaching of God's word, the faithful evangelism of you in your workplace, 
Yes, God is sovereign and he will save all those whom he has chosen. But you are the vessels that he has sent to preach the gospel to them. This is a horrible outcome that I would not wish upon my worst enemies. Therefore, the hope you have, make sure you are not squandering the time with it. There will be plenty of time to do the things you want to do, the righteous things you want to do even, in the eternal state. And chapter 21, where we are going to leave you today, is where the new heavens and the new earth are created. And we're going to look at that next week, what that's going to look like for us. What are we going to be doing? Is heaven going to be an endless church service? That's what many people think. And often people who, they don't necessarily like that idea, they think that that's, there's something wrong with them. Now look, I, especially now, I'd be okay with that. I am longing for the church to be gathered together, but Revelation teaches us that there is much more to the new heavens and the new earth. But we will talk about that next time. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, guard our hearts from thinking that we have plenty of time to reach out to those we love Help us to remember each and every day that we get up that it could be our last. Any of us could die any day. You could come back at any moment. Help us keep that on the forefront of our minds. If we only have one day left, what is worth doing? You're coming back soon. Help us be prepared. As Paul said, help us to encourage one another with these words. Provoke one another to good work, to be more and more like Christ so that when we meet you in the air, there is less of a transformation. Lord, we praise you that you did the work. You sent your son to die on the cross to pay the penalty we deserve. You took our sin upon yourself. Lord, help us to rejoice in that every day and remember that every day and live for you. We are set free from sin, not to enjoy our liberty and our own desires, but to slavery to you. We have been set free from sin to slavery to you. Help us to live for you. Amen. Amen.